I recently became aware of a series of stage plays written by the artistic director of the Arctic Cycle, Chantal Bilodeau, in regards to global warming. Her musical play, Forward, is about to be published next month, and I thought this the perfect opportunity for me to introduce you to the lead character of her play, Fridtjof Nansen, the famous Norwegian explorer, scientist, humanitarian, and diplomat. And though I've never heard of him until now, his is a truly interesting story. So, without further ado, I give you the Scattered Curiosities episode simply titled Fritjof Nansen. Like any good story, we must start at the beginning. Fridtjof Nansen was born in 1861 in Christiana, Norway, now called Oslo. And as a kid, he would spend the summers fishing and swimming, the fall hunting, and the winters were all about skiing, which, by the way, Nansen took up at the age of two. He was highly skilled in both ice skating and skiing, despite the fact that he nearly broke his neck at the age of 10 after disobeying his parents and trying out the Husby ski jump and getting thrown off his skis headfirst into a snow pile. And he broke the one-mile skating record at the age of 18, and the next year, he won the National Cross-Country Skiing Championship, which he went on to win another 11 times. Nansen was always seeking adventure, and it seemed unlikely that the young man would grow up to be such an intellect as his studies took second place to playing sports and exploring forests, making him quite the self-reliant survivalist. He decided to major in zoology at the Royal Frederick University in view of the fact that he thought that it would keep him out in the open air. And two years into his studies, a zoology professor of his told Nansen that he should participate in a sea voyage to study Arctic zoology. Nansen agreed and made arrangements with Captain Axel Crafting of the Viking. In preparation for the trip, Nansen did a ton of research and discovered that sea ice forms on the surface of water, not below it, and the Gulf Stream flows under the cold layer of surface water. The Viking meandered between Spitsbergen and Greenland hunting seals, another skill that Fritjof soon became expert at, precision shooting. Four months into the journey, the Viking got frozen in ice near the Greenland coast. Being trapped so close to land made Nansen homesick and gave him time and inspiration to brainstorm his theory that Greenland's ice cap could be studied and crossed. By August, the Viking freed itself from the ice and headed back for Norway, 
after the Viking voyage, Nansen chose not to return to his studies, but instead accepted the position of curator to the Bergen Museum for the next six years until his focus of study shifted to the central nervous systems of marine creatures, leading him to theories in neurology that are still in practice today. Neuroanatomy was a new science at the time, which is probably why it was so appealing to Nansen. In 1884, Nansen started to study the theories of a Norwegian meteorologist named Henrik Mann and started to think that you could reach the North Pole using the drift of the polar ice to carry you there. One source of evidence was from a U.S. ship named Jeannette, which was lost at sea on the other side of the Arctic Ocean near the Siberian coast, but artifacts from the ship wound up on the coast of Greenland. The reasoning was that the east-to-west current goes across the polar sea and maybe even the pole itself. A strong ship could get frozen in the Siberian Sea and drift to the North Pole. Three years later, Nansen publishes his doctoral thesis, The Structure and Combination of Histological Elements of the Central Nervous System. Sounds riveting, huh? That might even be too boring for me to read. But all the while, his thoughts in regards to crossing Greenland consumed him. And after submitting his doctoral thesis, he started to plan such a voyage. Up until that point, only two other explorers had made any significant progress into Greenland's interior. Adolf Norgenskold in 1883 and Robert Perry just last year, 1886. Both men started from the west, Disco Bay, and went about 100 miles east before turning around. Nansen planned to do just the opposite and approach from the east. He reasoned that he would be heading towards civilization by doing it in the reverse, making it a one-way trip towards a populated area, forcing the ship to move ever forward, the name of Chantal's play. And he would do so with a paltry crew of six who hauled supplies on lightweight sledges. Fritjof himself designed a lot of the clothes, sleeping bags, and stoves specifically used for this mission. Believe it or not, the Norwegian government at the time was not interested in funding this endeavor and thought the whole ordeal should not be entertained leaving the venture to be funded by a wealthy Danishman and a handful of well-wishing Norwegians. And even though the government expressed disapproval of the voyage, a lot of guys wanted to go on the journey. Nansen advertised the need for expert skiers on his team and 
hired two men from northern Norway who were basically penguins, Samuel Balto and Ole Nielsen Ravna, a sea captain named Otto Sverdrup, an acquaintance of Sverdrup's, Christian Christensen, and an army officer, Christian Dietrichsen. And right before they were scheduled to leave, Nansen went to a formal examination at the university who had finally agreed to review his thesis. And it is a common practice to defend your work in front of the examiners when seeking your doctorate. Nansen did so, but he left Norway without knowing the outcome of the exams. On June 3rd, 1888, he and his small team departed from northwest Iceland on a sealer ship named Jason. And a week later, they saw the coast of Greenland, but they couldn't get through it because of the thick pack ice. And the coast would remain 12 miles away for another five weeks. They had camped out on the ice, which had brought them south instead of north. And by July 29th, they were 240 miles south of the place where they had debarked the Jason. So they started rowing north and landed in Umavik Bay on August 11th and spent a few days there to regroup, recharge, and set out towards Greenland from there, traveling through treacherous storms on the inland ice. Nansen realized that they would not make it to Christianhaab by the middle of September when the last ship left port, so he decided to cross land due west to Goldthob and climbed a summit of 8,922 feet in negative 46 degrees Celsius weather before heading downhill. And once they arrived at the bottom, they faced a fjord that flowed towards Goldthob. So Otto Sverdrup MacGyvered a boat by using parts from local willows, sledges, and their tent. And the team rowed, rowed, rowed their boat gently down the fjord, arriving a few days later, where they were met by the city's Danish representative, who proudly told Nansen that he had received his doctorate. Nansen remarked that the news could, quote, not have been more remote from my thoughts at the moment, end quote. By the time the rest of his team arrived to meet them, it was October 12th, and there would be no more ships to come into Goldthob until spring. So, Nansen and his guys spend the next seven months in Greenland fishing, hunting, and mingling with the locals. On April 15th, a ship finally enters into Goldthob Harbor and Nansen and his men get ready to leave for Denmark and reach Copenhagen a little over a month later where they are greeted by a hero's welcome and again when they arrive in Christiana the following week. The Norwegian Geographical Society was developed that year as a result and Nansen was back to his curator position, which brought a healthy salary, but left him with no duties, 
which was fine considering that people wanted him to document the voyage and soon after he was asked to lead an Australian exploratory mission to Antarctica but turned it down. He believed that Norway should instead focus on the North Pole. Nansen was a notorious womanizer and stud and if you don't believe me Go online and check out some of his nude pics as a buff old man. And he always held a strong anti-marriage opinion. So in 1889, when Joff's old buddy Otto Sverdrup got the news that Nansen had gotten engaged to the daughter of a former zoology professor, he assumed that he had read it wrong. One month later, Fridjof Nansen married Eva Sars, a world-class opera singer whom Fridjof had met years earlier at a ski resort where Nansen remembered seeing, quote, two feet sticking out of the snow. Although sources claim that this most likely did not happen as Eva was an accomplished skier as well and three years his senior. Now married, Nansen could not divorce himself of his theories regarding polar drift from six years prior, and he started to plan to set out for the North Pole. And when he sought support from the Norwegian Geographical Society, he explained that other such missions had failed in that they had approached from west to east working against the polar current. His plan, he argued, would work since he would be working in tandem with the current by going from east to west. He wanted to have a strong but small ship that could hold supplies for 12 men for five years and would set out from where Jeanette is supposed to have sunk and Nansen planned to intentionally get stuck in the ice. American explorer Adolphus Greeley remarked that it was, quote, an illogical scheme of self-destruction, end quote, a sentiment that was shared amongst most adventurers of the day. But the Norwegian parliament gave him a grant, and patriotic countrymen helped raise the rest of the needed funds and the ship was 128 feet long, made of oak, and designed with many braces, crossbeams, and a round hull that would be pushed up out of pack ice. And while it was quite sturdy, speed was not its forte. The from, meaning forward, the name of Chantal's play, was to be completed and launched in 1892 where thousands of men applied to be just one of the 12 taken on the journey. And some of the men even accepted jobs that were beneath them. Army Lieutenant Yalmer Johansson was a dog driving expert, but was hired to be the stoker as it was the only position left. Otto Sverdrup, the captain from the last Greenland adventure, was brought on to captain the Fram as well and be second in command to Nansen for the entire trip. 
Fromm set out on June 24th, 1893 from Christiana and would reach its last port in Norway a month later where she focused on her target off the north coast of Siberia. And 10 days later, Fromm had reached 78 degrees north latitude, which is where the Jeannette is thought to have been crushed in ice. Nansen kept along the pack ice and had the rudder brought up and the engines killed at 78 degrees 49 minutes north and 132 degrees 53 minutes east. And the drifting began. And it was discouraging at times because as they would make progress north on some days, on others, they would start to drift southward again. And by November, they were actually further south than where they were when they went into the ice. On March 22nd, the following year, they finally passed the 80-degree point, and Nansen reasoned that at the rate that they were going, a mile a day, it would take five years to reach the North Pole. So, he started to brainstorm an alternative plan of action involving the use of their dog sledges to cross the Arctic and had his men practice driving dogs while they were adrift on their own private ice flow. Eight months later, Nansen was finally ready to let his crew know what he was up to and inform them that once Fromm passed 83 degrees, that he and Johansson the stoking dog sled expert, would go ashore with the dogs and sledges while Otto Sverdrup would keep the Fromm in drift until she floated to the North Atlantic Ocean. Meanwhile, the two landfarers would head towards Franz Josef Land and then would cross over to Spitsbergen to catch a ship home. And in order for the plan to work, the crew had to prep equipment and clothes for the sledge journey and built kayaks to be carried on the sledges. On January 8, 1895, Fromm reaches 83 degrees 34 minutes north, beating Greeley's record of 83 degrees 24 minutes north. By March 14th, the ship had reached 84 degrees north and... Nansen and Johansen were on their way. Fridjof calculated that they would travel seven nautical miles a day and estimated it would take 50 days to travel the remaining 356 miles. Although less than a month later, Nansen writes in his journal that it might be time to turn back. He recorded their northernmost latitude at 86 degrees, 13.6 minutes north. Three degrees past the last set world record. Their journey southward went well for about a week until their chronometers failed, making them rely on guesswork as to their true geographic position and the two men restarted their watches, but didn't really know for sure where they were. They finally saw signs of life by the end of the month when they spotted bear and fox tracks 
and eventually gulls, whales, and seal. Now you'd think that the warmer weather would be a welcome change of pace, but it actually made things worse by breaking up the ice and trapping the explorers on an ice floe, where they stayed for a month. In August, they had to resort to shooting their last dog, a painfully common practice on this particular journey. And the two then connected their kayaks and made way for land. But then the weather began to turn cold again, forcing them to winter ashore in a makeshift hut for the next eight months while sustaining themselves with the bears, walrus, and seal that they spotted earlier. And with so many delicious choices at hand, they were more worried about dying from boredom than they were from dying of lack of food at this point. They get moving again on May 19, 1896, and shortly thereafter, the kayaks were attacked by a walrus causing the men to go ashore to stop and repair them when suddenly, Nansen hears two very familiar sounds that he had almost forgotten. People and dogs. It turns out to be Frederick Jackson of Britain, a young explorer heading to Franz Josef Land, who said, upon seeing Friedjof, quote, You are Nansen, aren't you? End quote. Both men were shocked. Nansen had never been so delighted to be attacked by a walrus. Nansen and Johansen took off with Jackson on the ship Windward and arrived in Vardo a week later, where the man who came up with the polar drift theory, Henrik Mohn, just happened to be visiting. But while the public rejoiced of Nansen's arrival, there was still no news of the Fram for another 11 days until they arrived in Hammerfest and heard that Fram was seen coming out of the ice northwest of Spitsbergen. Nansen raced to meet up with his crew and did so. Once reunited, they set back towards Christiana, stopping in all the ports along the way until they arrived on September 9th and were greeted by King Oscar, who hosted Nansen in the palace on his first few days back in town. And just two months upon returning from his journey, Nansen wrote a 300,000-word account of his adventures titled Farthest North. It was a massive success. And in it, he even included many of the criticisms that he received by leaving his crew on the Fram to set out on land without them. Unsurprisingly, once back in Christiana, he began to focus his attention on oceanography, where he continued to influence development of oceanic equipment and became a professor of zoology at the Royal Frederick University, just like his wife's daddy. In 1900, Nansen was named the director of the International Laboratory for North Sea Research and he even sailed to Iceland briefly 
with the International Council for the Exploration of the Sea on a ship named Michael Sars after his father-in-law. And when Nansen returned home from the trip, he was told that his North Pole record of 86 degrees had just been broken by Italy. And Nansen actually took the news quite well, understanding that this is a part of exploration. And he would go on to be admired by seafarers ever since, including Robert Falcon Scott of the Discovery Expedition, who, in many regards, is the polar opposite of Fridjof Nansen. Pun totally intended because Discovery was the first official British expedition to the South Pole in Antarctica. Now in his early 40s, Nansen uses his many riches to build a new house for his wife and four kids where he would live for the next 28 years of his life. But his homeland is still not what he wants it to be. Nansen was passionate about Norway becoming independent of Sweden and he published a bunch of papers stating his position on the topic and the prime minister asked Nansen to join his cabinet, which he declined. But he did go out on campaign to spread the word about the situation. On August 13th, 1905, it was put to a vote and Sweden and Norway split ways. And for the next two years, Nansen served as a representative of Norway in London and was key to the integrity treaty that gave Norway its independence. Nansen enjoyed popularity in both Norway and England for two years when he ultimately considered his diplomatic work to be complete and resigned his post, much to the dismay of those who would have him stay on. Then, Fridjof gets the news that his wife Ava has come down with pneumonia and he begins to head home on December 8th, but doesn't make it back before her death. And with no reason to return to Christiana, he went back to London and re-signed to his position until 1910. Then, for the next few years, Nansen went on many oceanographic trips, including one that was named for him, Fridjof. Boy, that must have been weird. I am Fridjof of the Fridjof Expedition. And all of these explorations benefited greatly from the equipment that was designed by Nansen himself, like the Nansen bottle, which takes deep water samples. But his innovations don't stop there. He also invented the Nansen sledge, which had runners that resembled skis, the Nansen cooker, which addressed heat efficiency in polar weather, and designed polar clothing that consisted of many lightweight layers versus one big bulky coat. And when Nansen returned to Norway, he published a two-volume history regarding his study of the Arctic 
called in Northern Miss and started to hook up with his buddy Robert Falcon Scott's wife, Kathleen Bruce, who was a close friend of Isidore Duncan and Pablo Picasso, while Bobby was off in Antarctica. This was not uncommon for Kathleen, inasmuch that ever since she met her husband in 1907, he was always away. But they did manage to have one son, Peter Markham Scott. And lucky for us, and the world, because he grew up to found the WWF. No, not the World Wrestling Federation, but the Worldwide Fund for Nature. Now that's cool. And things would seemingly stay cool for Friedhoff for some time after that. Then, in January of 1913, Johansson, remember the dog sled guy that Nansen left Fromm with? Killed himself after being shamed during a South Pole expedition that he had been a part of. And then in March... Nansen's youngest son, Asmund, dies. So in an effort to get his mind on other things, that summer, Fritjof went out on yet another expedition to look into a possible trade route between Inter-Siberia and Western Europe and publish his findings in his report Through Siberia, which greatly influenced his compassion for refugees after the Great War, which was right around the corner. But not before Nansen set out once more with Helen Hansen on a tour through East Atlantic waters. When World War I breaks out in 1914, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark take a neutral status, and Fritjof Nansen is given the position of president of the Norwegian Union of Defense. As the war dragged on, trade in Norway became quite disrupted, which made food shortages an all-too-common occurrence. And when the United States joined the global conflict in 1917, it actually made matters worse for Norway because there were so many international trade restrictions. So Norway sent Nansen to the United States to get food and supplies for his countrymen in exchange for adhering to the ration system, an agreement that the Norwegian government was against. But Nansen reasoned that he was sent there by his government to do something about it, and so he did. He signed the agreement without their consent. At the war's end in 1918, the League of Nations is formed to the delight of Nansen, who quickly became president of the Norwegian League of Nations Society. Now, the League of Nations was wary of any of the neutral countries joining, but Nansen was persistent and he managed to get Norway admitted as a full league member in 1920. And he saw the League of Nations as a way for smaller countries like Norway to have a, quote, unique opportunity for speaking in the councils of the world, end quote. He was most interested in arms reduction. 
In April 1920, Nansen is one of Norway's three delegates to the League of Nations and is asked to arrange the repatriation of half a million POWs, 300,000 of whom were Russian. By November, he'd helped get 200,000 of them home and worked tirelessly at it for another two years until he was appointed to the League of Nations as the High Commissioner for Refugees and was tasked with helping Russian refugees return home and also refugees of other countries who were trapped in Russia, which was suffering from famine as crops were failing countrywide. Now, the Russian government was distrustful of the outside help, so Nansen took to fundraising himself. In his last report to the assembly, he had already helped 427,866 citizens of over 30 countries get home. He also worked with many Greeks and Turks that were affected by the Greco-Turkish Wars and managed to arrange a population exchange of Turks for Greeks and Greeks for Turks in both countries to help those folks have a nation again. And any of those Turks who were asked to leave Greece and return home were given compensation for doing so. After all of this, it's not surprising that Fridjof Nansen went on to win a Nobel Peace Prize in 1922 for his work in the League of Nations on behalf of World War I victims by designing the Nansen Passport for refugees who had no documentation. The Nansen Passport was initially developed for the Russian refugees, but it became valid in over 50 countries. The biggest issue that he saw with refugees was that they didn't have any papers or IDs to prove their countries of origin, so they couldn't go anywhere. Fridjof designed the Nansen passport for stateless people, and some notable folks to receive a Nansen passport were dancer Anna Pavlova, artist Mark Chagall, and composer Igor Stravinsky. Nansen donated his Nobel Prize money to relief efforts and writes another book, Armenia and the Near East, about Armenians losing their independence to the Soviet Union. It was translated to French, German, English, Armenian, and Russian. And he continued his humanitarian work in 1925, this time with Armenian refugees displaced by the Ottoman Empire during and after the war. He asked for 139 square miles to be reserved for the settling of 15,000 refugees, but was denied. But even through failure, Armenians love Fridjof Nansen for his efforts. Germans, too, because Nansen championed for Germany to be permitted into the League of Nations in 1926 
as a signatory to the Slavery Convention, which was designed to make forced labor illegal. And what do you think that Frejoff did next? You guessed it, he published two more books, Across America and Through the Caucasus to Volga. Then, on May 13, 1930, Frejoff Nansen dies of a heart attack, is cremated, and his ashes spread under a tree at Palhogda while Schubert's Death in the Maiden is played in the background. Why? It was part of his late wife Ava's repertoire. And right after he died, the League of Nations developed the Nansen International Office for Refugees to honor him and keep his work alive, which was a challenge as the 1930s saw many dictatorships worldwide. And in 1938, despite having been dead for eight years, Frejoff continues to make me feel lazy when the Nansen International Office wins a Nobel Peace Prize, and 15 years after that, the United Nations comes out with the Nansen Medal, later renamed the Nansen Refugee Award, which is given annually to a person or group for work with refugees. To this day, Nansen is still held with esteem as a founder of modern neurology who established the Central Oceanographic Laboratory in Oslo. Many things today bear his name, including the Nansen Ski Club, the oldest running ski club in America, along with geographic locales like the Nansen Basin and the Nansen Gockel Ridge in the Arctic Ocean, Mount Nansen in the Yukon, Mount Frechoff Nansen and the Nansen Island in Antarctica, an impact crater on the moon's North Pole, and the Frechoff Nansen Institute in Palhogda. There is even a type of tiny fish called Nansia named for him, and asteroid 853 Nansia is named for him, and the Royal Norwegian Navy has five Frejoff Nansen class frigates, one of which is named HMS Frejoff Nansen, and there is even one named for his old pal Otto Sverdrup, too. And I would be remiss if I didn't at least give you a taste of Nansen's aforementioned polar opposite, pun totally intended, Robert Falcon Scott. Prior to Robert Falcon Scott's discovery expedition, the furthest south reached was 78 degrees 58 minutes, which was reached on sledges in 1899, despite George Nares's opinion of the North Pole, which he referred to as impracticable. Robert Falcon Scott demanded, quote, complete command of the ship and landing parties. End quote, and threatened to resign if it wasn't granted. Scott's version of Otto Sverdrup came in the form of a doctor and zoologist named Edward Wilson, and he was the calming voice of reason to Scott's unpredictability. 
Scott wisely asked Frejoff Nonsen's advice regarding polar equipment and acquiring 25 Siberian sledge dogs, but neglected to bring a dog expert with him. The orders given to Discovery were, quote, to determine as far as possible the nature, condition, and extent of that portion of the South Polar Lands which is included in the scope of your expedition to make a magnetic survey in the southern regions to the south of the 40th parallel and to carry out meteorological, oceanographic, geological, biological, and physical investigations and research. Neither of these objectives is to be sacrificed to the other. End quote. And just like Fritjof Nansen, Robert Falcon Scott was a superstar as a young man, too. He passed all of his exams and started a naval career in 1881 at the age of 13 and came out a midshipman in just two years, ranking seventh out of his class of 26 and advanced to the position of sub-lieutenant in just five years. Discovery shoves off from the Isle of Wight on August 6, 1901 and takes off from New Zealand at the end of November. By February 1902, they had arrived at Winter Quarters Bay and he too allowed his ship, Discovery, to get frozen into the ice and they camped out on the ice. Unlike Nansen, though, none of the crew were skilled skiers and almost none of them knew anything about sledge dogs forcing the men to haul them. However, they eventually passed the 78-degree mark, but conditions worsen and the dogs got weaker due to poor planning with dog food, forcing the crew to shoot the weakest dogs to feed the stronger ones. And the men were suffering from frostbite, snow blindness, and scurvy. Their farthest mark south was 82 degrees, 17 minutes south. Yet, by the time they reached it, all of the dogs were dead. So, they turned back to the ship. And after wintering aboard Discovery, Scott decides to head back out in search of the magnetic pole and sets out for it on October 26, 1903. And while they were able to travel 150 miles, they too lost their navigational tables and were a bit lost as to their true location. They were completely in the hands of Scott's senses. They make a 59-day round trip of 700 miles where they discover an emperor penguin colony and even an extremely rare bit of land not covered in snow. Upon their return to the discovery, they discovered that it was still frozen in ice requiring the use of ice saws and dynamite to free her. The return to Britain in 1904 saw much less fanfare than that of Nansen's journey, 
Although England was proud of all the biological and geological specimens found, marine species, calculating the location of the South Magnetic Pole, and, after the loss of their dogs, the discovery that fresh seal meat can actually help prevent scurvy. Penguin meat helps, too. And much like Nansen, upon his return home, he got to writing his memoirs of the adventure called The Voyage of the Discovery, which was published within just a year. And in it, he praises his crew for manhauling everything after the loss of their dogs and alludes to it somehow being more noble than using other traveling techniques like skis and dogs and would apply such thinking to future expeditions. This confused Nansen and the other Arctic experts whom Scott would often consult with and then ignore their advice, which will be his demise about a decade later when he sets out on the ill-fated Terra Nova expedition in 1910. This time, he would heed Fritjof Nansen's advice and bring dogs and skis, which was smart, but also had his Siberian dog expert buy him Manchurian snow ponies, which is not only adorable and true, but highly ineffectual in the Antarctic. Scott had departed South Wales in June 1910, and when he reached one of his stops along the way to Antarctica in Melbourne, Australia, he gets a telegram that read, quote, Beg leave to inform you from preceding Antarctic, Amundsen, end quote, which meant that Scott was in a race to the South Pole with Norway. Terra Nova sped off to bad luck from the beginning, almost sinking in a storm after leaving New Zealand and then unintentionally getting frozen in ice where their snow ponies were not faring well and three of them had drowned due to cracked sea ice and another three were shot because they were slowing everybody down. The crew's luck turned around a little bit in November 1911 and they designed a plan to caravan down to the South Pole and having small teams go back to set up bases along the way as a support team that could get provisions to what would eventually be a four-man team at the Pole. Scott even orders one of his men by the name of Atkinson to, quote, take the two dog teams south in the event of Mares, the dog driver, having to leave, end quote. They were to meet at a latitude of 82 degrees on March 1st. By January 1912, the final two teams of four men arrived at 87 degrees, 34 minutes south and Scott sent three back, and his team of five men reached the South Pole on January 17, 1912, only to discover that Amundsen beat him there just five weeks earlier. They dejectedly start their 800-mile journey back and face poor weather 
and the death of one man. At least his relief team is coming. Only it isn't. Because back at the Terra Nova, Atkinson is unloading supplies from the ship instead of heading south with dogs like Scott told him to do. By March 10th, it was clear that help was not coming. But Robert Falcon Scott held the belief that his rescuers had either met their peril or that he had overshot the rendezvous point. The remaining men write their goodbye letters and their final journal entries on March 29, 1912. Scott wrote, quote, We took risks. We knew we took them. Things have come out against us. And therefore, we have no cause for complaint, but bow to the will of providence. Determined still to do our best to the last. Had we lived, I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance, and courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. These rough notes and our dead bodies must tell the tale. But surely, surely, a great rich country like ours will see that those who are dependent on us are properly provided for. End quote. There are over 30 monuments to Robert Falcon Scott, including his sledging flag at the Exeter Cathedral and the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge. And his widow, you remember the one that hooked up with Fritjof Nansen, even sculpted a statue of Robert Falcon Scott that sits in Christ Church, New Zealand to this very day. Scattered curiosity, in 1948, a movie called Scott of the Antarctic was released in Britain and there is a scene in the movie where Robert Falcon Scott is trapped in the snow and he has painful memories of Fritjof Nansen telling him to only take sledge dogs. Now, I know that this episode didn't really follow suit with the rest of our Scattered Curiosities episodes where I'm bouncing all over the place. I instead focused on two guys. But you gotta admit that they're two pretty fascinating characters. And I can't believe that I had never heard of Fritjof Nansen until then. Please, check out the musical play Forward by Chantal Bilodeau and also... Please join us for the next episode of Scattered Curiosities. If you'd like to help us keep the curiosities coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.